Hello and welcome to Chewing the Fat with Mike, the podcast where we remind you that you woke up today with air in your lungs, food in your pantry, and most importantly, coffee in your cup. I am your host, Michael D. Smith. Today we are with a longtime friend's girlfriend who works in the medical field, and her name is Lindy. And she's going to introduce us a little bit into the medical field today because I probably don't know anybody else who does or will ever work in the medical field. So let's get right into it, into the nitty gritty, dirty bowels of the hospital occupation. What, in your opinion, is the nastiest, nastiest shit you've ever dealt with? Hi Mike, thanks for having me. Well, that's a great question because in my job, I deal with a lot of shit. So, a few years back, there was a strain of synthetic marijuana going around, being sold at the gas stations in our area, that had a side effect of bleed in your intestines. A lot of blood coming from your intestines. So, we would have patients come in after smoking this with horrible, horrible jab bleeds. So this old man, he was, I mean, he was only in his early 60s, but you know, he lived a hard life. He aged himself a little bit. He was in our ICU because he was, he was losing a lot of blood. And we had him on a continual drip of blood and infusion. And for some reason, I don't understand, he decided to get on all fours to take a poop. And I just remember calling my aide, and this is no aid, and this is no aid that you would traditionally think of. We'll call this aid Miss C. Miss C was about a year away from retirement, and she had worked at the hospital for 45 years, and she would tell you every single time that she worked there for 45 years. So she, she took her time bringing all the stuff in, and I was trying to contain this patient and, you know, he was ready to go by the time Miss C got in there. And she had the bedpan ready. This man did not with the bedpan. He was on all fours. And he said, I'm going to go. I want to go. I got a boo-boo. And Miss Carol looked at him with such sass just in time for this man to projectile shit right onto her chest. And you just see Miss Carol go... And she just dropped onto the ground and she was paralyzed. We had to have two of the male nurses grab her and drag her out of the room as she was screaming, Oh, the poo poo! The poo poo! It hit me on the chest! Oh, I got the poo poo! And it was bloody and it was poopy and there was corn. Yeah. There was a lot of corn. Poor Missy. Alright, so we got down to the nitty gritty real quick. So, um, is there like a favorite time where you're like, like so happy that you're in the medical field? Is there a time when you are like, holy shit, this is what I do. I'm so glad I'm here. That's a great question, Michael. You know, those are the moments that really make my job worth it and remind me why I 
chose that job in the first place. So getting a little personal, I have worked in a COVID unit since the beginning of the pandemic. And I take care of the vetted patients. And we call this one lady our miracle lady because she had every single thing against her. Every comorbidity that they say could get you killed with COVID, this lady had. It was at the very beginning of the pandemic when we just started treatments of ominously any kind. And we threw the whole bus at her. And it was one of those situations where you just kind of end hopeless and you don't want to give up. And we do this one thing that we call, you know, fly or fall. A nice way to put it. Where you take a patient that's on the ventilator and you don't know if they'll be able to breathe or not on their own. And you just go for it. You have everything ready to put the tube back in. A whole team about 10 people waiting in the room, watching this person as you take the breathing tube out, just in case they fall. And for God knows what reason, she was fine. She wasn't able to sit up afterwards. She wasn't able to do lift her own head, which I mean, on its own is a reason that you shouldn't have taken out the tube to begin with. So that alone was a miracle, but I just kept taking care of her, even after the tube was out, which a nurse in the unit that I do isn't something that's pretty common. I like the excitement of other types of patients. But I started talking to her and, you know, bathing her, helping her with everything, feeding her. She can't even lift her own head. It takes a long time. And let me tell you, she's a talker. Those months that she was under... She, she was waiting to respond to everything that was said to her. She knew my voice. She knew the name of my boyfriend. She knew the doctors. Those kids were sick. She heard everything. And she told us that she cared. And I think that alone, honestly, is enough make everything worth it. So I'm not going to try to jump down the path of religion, but is there different rituals that people want to happen to them circled around the time of their passing at all? Or is that anything that you've experienced personally? Well, of course. I work with death pretty much every single day that I go to work. So I do see a lot of different traditions, rituals, practices, beliefs, all pertaining to death. And it's interesting and honestly, I think it's kind of beautiful to see. Um, some people believe that you need to be completely whole when you die. And so one thing that we've run into because I've worked at a trauma center in the past is organ donation. Some people completely for it, and other people for religious, superstitious, and, I mean, just personal reasons. They don't want their loved ones to be organ donors, especially once they understand the process. So that's one thing to think about. Other things is some people want to be anointed. 
other people um, think that the person should be alone. Some believe that the person should be surrounded by their whole family. Um, some people think it's a celebration. I mean, certain people groups have brought in a whole bunch of food and you'll have 20 people in the room just waiting. And it's so weird because you'll be in there and they'll come ask you to come give medication, turn the patient, wipe something up, you know, just normal everyday things. But there's 30 people, 20 people in the room and you go in there, give medications, get them all fixed up. And they're just totally fine letting you bump into them and they think it's just completely normal that the whole community is a part of this and I realize they're not ignoring the person. They're giving that person one final celebration and I honestly find that one of the most beautiful ways that I've seen people celebrate death. Now something you said earlier, let's just back up a little bit and talk about the organ donor process. Maybe there is something that I do not know about this, because as I said, I am completely ignorant when it comes to the medical field. But I am wondering if I heard you properly when it sounded like there was something that, you know, just based out of common knowledge that someone wouldn't know about organ donating. So there is actually something about the organ donation process that many people don't realize quite a few people have on a driver's license the little heart for organ donation and yes we always do honor that but we also are respectful and we're human beings so quite often um, we tell the family the whole process and at first, they are all for it. They want to, you know, honor their loved one's wishes. They know that it saves lives. But then you hear the actual process. So the biggest part is your loved one has to be declared legally brain dead. There's a few ways to do it. One is turning off their ventilator and making sure they don't breathe for two minutes straight. Another one is injecting them with dye and watching their brain flow and seeing that they have zero brain flow in their brain. And those are the two main ways that we diagnose that someone is legally brain dead. The other way to do organ donation is called uh, by cardiac arrest. And so they have to be able to be taken to the OR and the breathing tube pulled die within 90 minutes of that breathing tube being pulled or else the organs will have had too much damage from the lack of oxygen to be able to be used. So when family hears that, it gets a little more gruesome. We usually do, you know, the brain death way. It, it just makes you feel a little better about it, honestly. But then you need to find matches. And here's the thing. Organs have a time limit, even on a bag of ice. The biggest one is the heart. From the time that the surgery starts and the heart is cut out of the body, you have six hours until that heart needs to be in another human being. And that needs to be driven, med-flighted, something, to the hospital. That surgeon that took the heart out goes with the heart 
to the other hospital and they start the surgery, that other patient is already open on the table waiting for that heart. To coordinate that takes such effort. It is incredible that they're even able to do it within the three to seven days that they normally do. But it's hard to see your loved one or your former loved one laying in the bed. No brain function, but the machine's still having them breathe. We're still helping make their heart beat. It's just hard. So people always have the best intentions, but it's really, really hard to be able to follow through. I've had an experience like that. My buddy died and they kept him alive for a couple hours on a ventilator or whatever it was. The machine kept him alive and uh, my mom called me crying. She said, he's still alive right now, but he's not going to be alive for long. He was an organ donor, and that's why he's still alive, so they could use his organs. But on another instance, my grandfather just died, So, and he was an organ donor. But I don't know if because of his age, if they'd use him or not, and he also had cancer and dementia. However... He was an organ donor. Would his organs go to somebody else, or would they just deem those as unusable as an 87-year-old man? So there are a few factors that would stop the organ donation process. One of them is age. At 87, you would not be able to donate your heart, lungs, liver, anything like that. But um, the elderly is the largest population for tissue donation actually so that's things like uh skin um corneas things like that um things that could discount them is if they had radiation chemotherapy anything like that with a certain amount of time if the cancer had spread to that tissue um, COVID actually discounts any type of organ donation as of right now, as of most blood-borne illnesses. So certain things would stop the organ donation process, but um, they do try to accept as many possible donations as possible. Now, I have asked you this before, but I figured I might as well get it on the podcast. So, as far as any of the hospital shows that you see on TV, Grey's Anatomy, all that stuff, which one would you say is the closest and most relevant to the actual hospital occupation life? Great question, and I don't think everyone would agree with me, but growing up, one of my favorite shows to watch was Scrubs, and I honestly think that Scrubs is the most accurate representation of the day-to-day thoughts of a medical professional and the personalities of the people that you would run into in the hospital system. Everyone's a character. No one's boring. And honestly, you don't know what's going to walk in the door. I guess you heard it here first. Scrubs is accurate as far as doctor sitcoms go. 
Or at least as accurate as all of them, anyway. Just another question, because I have watched Scrubs. Is there a Dr. Cox? Is that the? Is there a real doctor like that? A doctor who just wants everyone to shut the hell up and stop talking to him? <laughs> so here's the thing. There is a lot of people that went into the medical field for the wrong reason. And one of the reasons that you should go in the medical field is because you love people. Well, here's the thing. Not every doctor loves people. A lot of them don't actually love people. So the fact that they have to deal with people every single day makes them better. So yes, at some point, you have a Dr. Cox in every single doctor. Alright, now earlier we were talking about COVID. Is Has that calmed down at all? Or is it still like a never-ending stream of patient after patient after patient? that still needs treatment, that has some way been affected by COVID or come in contact with COVID? Has that changed at all, or has that gotten worse at all? So the actual patients that come to my unit usually come in waves, and it goes with the cycle of the actual infection. So some big event happens, like a holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and people get infected. And then there's the incubation period, which is usually, you know, five to seven days. And then people usually get sick and they actually go to the hospital around um, five to seven days after they start showing symptoms. And then usually between nine to 11 days, if they're gonna progress, they progress and they'll have to come to the ICU and get a breathing tube. So it kind of goes in that cycle. And so we'll all of a sudden have like our whole unit completely filled with COVID patients. And then in a month or so, no COVID patients in our ICU. So it kind of goes like that. And it's predictable, but unpredictable all in some kind of messed up way. Alright, well this has been another episode of Chewing the Fat with Mike. Thank you, Lindy, for stopping by. And remember to stay healthy and above all, stay blessed. Also, I want to apologize if the sound quality has been less than great. I am recording on a different microphone today.